0: Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan.
1: And I'm Mason Adams. It's the holiday season. So today we're talking about food.
2: It's a real moist gingerbread cake and it calls for molasses, but the best molasses to use in it is sorghum molasses. And it's just like balances perfectly with the spices in the gingerbread cake. We're talking about fun.
3: It it seems a few weeks earlier she had decided that we were going to have a Christmas Eve
1: Easter egg hunt. And we're talking Christmas music, as loved and sung by a herd of goats.
2: Sometimes if the doors open, if they're outside, you can see them, they'll just lift their ears up like they're trying to catch more of the sound of the organ.
0: Singing goats, a pickle in a tree, and an Easter egg hunt at Christmas. You'll hear these stories and more this week Inside Appalachia. Welcome Inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan.
1: And I'm Mason Adams. A couple episodes back, we asked the question, what is Appalachia?
0: Well, we pulled out the maps and went looking for answers throughout the region. Everywhere from Mississippi to Pittsburgh to places in between.
1: And we invited you to respond with your own thoughts.
0: Listener Anne Valine of Asheville, North Carolina, emailed with music on her mind. She suggested we listen to Appalachian Love Song by Ross Hollow.
1: Appalachian, Appalachian, what the hell's your
0: Daniel Coleman of Bluefield, West Virginia wrote, You asked if I'm inside Appalachia. Actually, Appalachia is inside me. Coleman says he grew up in McDowell County, West Virginia, but moved away to North Carolina for 50 years. He's now retired in Bluefield and says he'll always be a mountaineer.
1: Annie Wolford in Deep Gap, North Carolina responded to my story about the Appalachian Regional Commission and its boundaries in Virginia. She tweeted, I've always been fascinated by the way the map literally goes around Roanoke. Annie says she's been told that people in the railroad industry didn't want to be associated with Appalachia.
0: Karen Bryant of Pittsburgh just wrote a novel that takes place in Mingo County, West Virginia. We had asked Pittsburghers like Bryant if you all consider yourselves Appalachian. She says she doesn't, but she writes, I do consider myself tied to the Appalachian experience.
1: Mary Dombrowski-Wright, also of Pittsburgh, says that when she was growing up, she mostly identified as part of her Polish-American neighborhood. Now, she's added Appalachian to her sense of self as well.
2: I think sometimes people think Outside of this area, think of Appalachia as this monolithic, you know, everybody is from the mountains or something, and it's not, or, or that we think a particular way, or that we have a particular political outlook. And I think that we are, as a group, as a region, we're a diverse group. We're a culturally very rich group from very different ethnic backgrounds or cultural backgrounds and yet still share a common history and a common culture. And I feel really good about putting a name on that and saying, this is Appalachia.
0: Thanks to all of you guys who wrote an email, sent a message, or tweeted at us. We sure hope there's a little Appalachia inside all of you. I fell in
1: love with your curves, your honeysuckle vines and turns along geographic boundaries divide us into who's in and who's out but traditions especially around the holidays can bring us together
0: and that's even true when it comes to making new traditions one of our reporters zach harold called me up the other day to tell his story
3: you know almost nothing about the reason I, i called you today Oh, uh, right.
0: I Literally nothing.
3: Well, you know that we're talking on this episode about unique family Christmas holiday traditions. Right. I have the perfect story <laughs> for this. Oh, boy. So one year, we were at my in-law's house on Christmas Eve, and my mother-in-law announced that we were going to do things a little different. So you remember my brother-in-law, Alex, from that pulled candy story that I did last year?
0: Oh, yeah, I do. <laughs>
3: I took a metal baking sheet and
4: froze it. And I started working the candy. And before I knew it, I had my hands stuck to this baking sheet walking around the house. (laughs)
3: Let me tell you, man, that stuff is like quick creep. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, that's Alex. Um, I got on a Zoom call with him the other day and asked him to describe the scene at that Christmas party.
4: Dad... And mom said, we're going to do something different this year. Instead of just giving you guys some money, we hid some Easter eggs out in the yard.
5: It, it just came to me to, to do the Easter eggs. And I don't know if it, if I'd seen it somewhere and thought it was a good idea. It's been too many years. But nevertheless, I knew that that would be something I thought that we could do and it would be fun.
3: That's my mother-in-law, Cheryl, by the way.
5: <laughs> Wait, Easter Easter
0: eggs.
3: Yes. It it seems a few weeks earlier she had decided that we were going to have a Christmas Eve Easter egg hunt, but it turns out there were some challenges getting it together.
5: So the hardest part was to try to find plastic Easter eggs in December. My mom, being the, the pack rat hoarder of all times, I thought she probably has some, and mom had some. I don't know. It was all a big surprise. (laughs) Did
3: you have to go hunting for them, or do you know where they
5: were at? Oh, I knew where they was at. I know where all my junk's at. (laughs) That's
3: Whitney's grandmother, Frances. Um,
6: Oh, my God.
3: But, see, we're all adults at this point. There are no grandchildren (laughs) in the family. It's all a bunch of adult children in their 20s. So it wasn't just enough to go out and hide Easter eggs in the grass.
5: We thought, well, let's, let's... let's make it harder, let's make a challenge. So we thought we'd do flashlights.
4: Then we all went outside and got some flashlights and dad had put like the reflective miner's tape or whatever on all the eggs.
5: Kind of looked strange, people going by. We had a couple of people stop and want to know what we were doing.
4: I mean, you see people outside with flashlights on the ground You know, thinking, oh, maybe someone lost something. Maybe someone lost a ring or a watch or something. I don't know.
5: He told them, well, we're hiding Easter eggs. Like, doesn't everybody?
3: And after that first year, it's become a yearly thing.
5: This is very elaborate.
3: (laughs) Oh, it's even more elaborate than you think, because there are rules. (laughs) Everybody was supposed to find five eggs. No more, no less. And inside each of those eggs was a different amount of money so the challenge wasn't who gets the most eggs it's who after the competition is over gets the most money in their eggs which made things a little more fair and equitable but that didn't stop things from getting pretty bloodthirsty pretty quickly my wife and her brother have this really special close bond uh, but it completely disappears as soon as the Easter egg hunt
5: begins. (laughs) Well, they're very competitive towards each other and always have been.
4: I I guess the competition is like who finishes, uh, who gets their five eggs first, who's able to find them.
5: And then one year, Alex decides that... um, He's just gonna snip the end off of her bag, so he does, and she loses some of her eggs as she's going up the hill, so she has a hole in her bag.
4: I don't recall that. I'm not gonna say that didn't happen, but I've tried to lock her out of the fence and shine my
3: flashlight in her eyes.
0: Zach, so tell me about what your wife Whitney has to say about all this.
3: Uh well, um, I ask her.
5: I don't wanna be on the radio. This is not my thing. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uninterested. (laughs) That was the
3: firmest, like, after over a decade in journalism, that is the firmest no comment I have ever received.
0: (laughs) Well, that has got to be one of a kind. I, I, like, I question whether any other family in the world does Easter egg hunts on Christmas.
3: Well, my mother-in-law is trying to make it a thing now.
0: Oh, really? Is it catching on?
3: Not yet.
5: I encourage my my sisters to do, they're always looking for something to do for their kids, and they all have a bunch of grandkids and, and kids. And I'm always encouraging them, like, your kids would love us, believe me. If my adult kids love it, your kids will love this.
3: She has some tips for anybody that wants to try it at home, although it won't help you much this year. She says, after Easter, stock up on plastic eggs.
5: I've got a whole storage thing full of eggs. Well, you're not going to find them in December so then
0: this spring, we that we got to have that on our mind. We got to be thinking about next Christmas.
3: Yeah. And if you're anywhere around Charleston, West Virginia, you're probably going to be competing with my mother-in-law because she just buys every leftover <laughs> Easter egg she can find.
0: Well, Zach, happy holidays and um, I guess best of luck to you in the, the upcoming Easter egg hunt.
3: Thank you. I will most definitely need it. Uh, happy holidays to you and yours, <laughs> and I'll, uh, I'll I'll leave you with, with a saying that my dad has used for as long as I can remember, if I don't see you before Easter, hide the eggs.
0: <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> Will do.
1: <laughs> Here comes Peter Cottontail, hopping down the bunny trail, hippity-hopping, Easter's on its way. Bring in every girl and boy, baskets full of Easter joy, things to make your Easter bright and gay.
0: That was reporter Zach Harold talking with me about his family's holiday traditions.
1: We wanted to know more about your traditions. We heard from a high school teacher in Fayette County, West Virginia.
0: Her name is Sherry McDaniel, and she told us about another Christmas scavenger
7: hunt.
2: So every Christmas, my family will find the pickle ornament
7: that's hidden on the Christmas tree and we take turns. Everyone gets out of the room except for one person in the timer and they search for the hidden pickle ornament that's on the tree. So everybody gets their turn and whoever finds the pickle the fastest gets $5.
1: Now, there's nothing quite like a homemade pickle. So it makes a lot of sense to commemorate one with a holiday ornament.
0: Thanks to Anna Skaggs, a junior at the Fayette Institute of Technology, for recording her teacher, Sherry McDaniel. You're listening to Inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan.
1: And I'm Mason Adams.
0: For our next story, we travel to a farm in Bluefield, Virginia, where a herd of music-loving goats gathers each Christmas to listen to the sound of carols played on a church organ. I'm going to let our producer, Roxy Todd, explain it from here.
7: There's a tradition in Appalachia of observing old Christmas on January 6th. Folklore suggests that animals speak, so children are encouraged to go to bed early. But honestly, if someone told me that, I think I would try to sneak out and catch a glimpse of animals talking. But it turns out you don't have to wait till January 6th to hear goats singing to Christmas carols. Yep. Those are goats singing along to O Come All Ye Faithful. Connie Bailey Kitts is the owner of these musical goats and of the massive organ that the goats apparently love to listen to. The organ that Connie keeps at her farm dates back to the 1920s. Her family bought it about 50 years ago.
2: So my brother Daryl goes to my dad and he says, how much do you think I should offer for the organ and my dad being the local vet slash world-class horse trader said oh I think you should offer maybe about $25 for it. So the family bought the organ from a nearby church for $25. And I don't know what the value of the organ was. Uh, I'm, I'm sure in the tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars was probably the original value of the organ. This is an enormous church organ we're talking about.
7: There are actually more than 600 metal and wooden pipes, and they all play a different note. They moved the organ to their family farm, and Connie's brother is a classically trained musician. So we'd play the organ at family gatherings, especially at Christmas. A few years ago, Connie's father passed away, and most of her family lives scattered across the country. So they rarely get to see each other these days. This year, her brother couldn't make the trip due to the weather. But Connie and her husband started a new tradition of inviting neighbors over to sing carols.
2: Oh, we always do, Oh Come, All You Faithful, because it sounds so majestic on the organ. And Joy to the World, of course. Hark the Herald Angels Sing.
7: That's Connie's neighbor, Susan Allen, playing the organ for a small gathering of children and adults. And there are animal fans of music who gather around the organ, too.
2: Yeah, if they hear the music playing, they just immediately, they'll come down from the field when they hear the organ, and the organ's really, really powerful. If you open the door, you can hear it like, what, 300, 400 feet away from where it is. So it's, it's, it's got a really, really big sound, and they're drawn to it. Sometimes if the door's open, if they're outside, you can see them. They'll just lift their ears up like they're trying to catch more of the sound of the organ. I think they don't know quite what to make of it. And then when, when you open the door... They don't hesitate at all to go in. And, and the sound of the organ, it doesn't intimidate them either. It's, it's just amazing.
7: Connie also runs a small Airbnb, which at times does attract guests from as far away as Russia. She had a guest a few years ago who plays percussion for the Moscow Philharmonic, and he sat down to play the organ and entertain the goats. But the goats actually don't seem to mind who's playing the organ. They just love the music. Here they are singing along as one of Connie's neighbors, Jim Bartlett, plays joy to the world. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Roxy Todd.
1: Roxy originally reported that story back in 2019. Connie Bailey-Kitts is now one of our Folkways reporters. She says the pandemic actually gave her and her brother some time to repair the old organ. Here's what it sounds like these days.
0: Connie's goats still love singing along to Christmas carols, although they're still a little slightly off-key at times. But I think they sound good. We've posted a few photos of Connie's musical goats who are named Cinnamon, Piano, Percy, and Sledge. They're at our website, wvpublic.org.
1: Up next.
8: Oh, goodness, I love to make cookies, and I would be up to 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning making cookies.
1: What were you doing up so late at night making cookies? That's the secret life of mom that I didn't know about (laughs) because I was sleeping. I talk with my mom and learned some new things about holiday cookie making. That's after a break. You're Inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams.
0: And I'm Caitlin Tan. We'll be right
8: back.
1: I'm dreaming of a white
5: Christmas. Just like the ones I used.
0: year, we did a holiday show, kind of like this one, where we asked people to share their holiday traditions. Most of the show actually involved food because, well, food is just one of those essential parts of the holidays.
1: Caitlin and I spent some time sitting down with our families to talk about food and the holidays. Let's listen back to those stories.
0: So we both actually spent a little time with uh, members of our family, looking back on some of the traditions that we grew up with. So I've been quarantining with um, my grandmother, my oma, for the past half year now. So we actually are in the same household. I had her make one of my favorite Christmas recipes that I grew up on called Stollen. It's like this German... I don't wanna say fruitcake, but I don't know what else to say, but it's not fruitcake, but a little bit like that. It's, It's like more of a bread that's sweeter with a tiny bit of cake influence and some powdered sugar on top and pieces of fruit inside. So, my Oma, her real name's Ilsa Tan, she and I actually made the recipe together a couple weeks ago. It's one that she even had around the holidays growing up in former East Germany. We started by putting all the ingredients in a big mixing bowl. First, five cups of flour. Here's my Oma. Eins, zwei, drei, vier. Das sind vier. Und noch einen. One more? One more. One more, yeah. Danke. Then comes the baking powder and spices cinnamon and cardamom. So, and now
4: two cups of sugar.
0: Almost. 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 My Oma is an artist, so everything she does is a little. You know, it's not quite by the recipe. Like, she'll say, oh, a handful of raisins, maybe more, or a knife tip of cinnamon, <laughs> a little more. And, um, and it, it's oh, just... Oh, here's t- yeah. three,
1: three tablespoons of butter. Oh, the whole stick fell in.
0: Right, exactly. There's a, <laughs> there's a part where she's adding rum to the recipe. And it's supposed to be like two tablespoons in and And then she just goes, maybe a little more. You can also add other types of dried fruit and a couple handfuls of sliced almonds. Then you add two sticks of melted butter, a pint of sour cream, and two eggs. Let's see, another one. And then you mix everything together. Back in the day, my Oma did that all by hand, but now we have an electric mixer. At this point, all the ingredients should create this thick, sticky dough with little pieces of dried fruit and almonds sticking out. And then put the loaves into the oven for about an hour, more or less. Oh, is it done? The Stollen should have a golden brown color and honestly smell like Christmas. While it's still hot, make sure to paint some melted butter on top and This is the most important part if you have a sweet tooth. Sprinkle a thick layer of powdered sugar. Then let the stelling cool and then slice it and enjoy. Does it taste okay? Just how I always remembered it. It's like sweet but not too sweet. That's right. Stollen has always been a part of my Christmases. Even living in West Virginia, my family sent me Stollen. But it wasn't until I did this interview with my Oma that I realized just how deep the tradition is. It turns out this recipe is from the early 1900s, from her mother, who made Stollen every year. And this was even during the hard times, like World War II, and then after when my oma and her family lived under the control of the Russians in former East Germany.
4: My mother always was able to get some some ingredients, and if we didn't get all of them, well, that's fine, and we have less. But, um, yeah, it's you try your best to get get it going before christmas
0: so um, it must have been kind of like a small little highlight during the you know during a very kind of dark years oh yeah christmas time
4: yes and even <clears throat> my brother was in a concentration camp <coughs> for 3 years and yet during the 3 years my mother still made stollen
0: What I took away from this interview and baking with my Oma are two things. One, that there are often really rich stories behind our traditions. They all come from somewhere, right? And two, that even during hard years, like a worldwide pandemic, there's still some joy to be found around the holidays. So if you want to try this recipe for Stollen or any other recipes mentioned in this show, go to wvpublic.org.
1: Can I ask you a question about the Stolen? Oh,
0: please, please.
1: So, you talked about growing, when you were growing up, you'd eat it while you were opening presents. Yes. And that's awesome. Have you like had it since then out of that context and been like, mm, not a sweet?
0: I, <laughs> well, so kind of. I've had it, you know, moving away from my Oma, when I would see her around the holidays, she would always have Stolen around. You know, I would eat it, and honestly, it takes me back. It, like, makes me feel like a kid again. Even when I've been living in West Virginia, my mom and Oma have made Stollen and sent it to me. And it it's honestly just as good. It, it's like a smell or song, you know, something that takes you back to that moment in time. And it makes me think of being, like, a six-year-old girl in her Christmas dress on Christmas night and it, it makes me feel like there's that magic of the holidays again and that Santa just brought me my presents and it really brings that all back to me and it's pretty special so I don't I love Stollen and I don't know how much of it is the memory and how much is that I genuinely just love the the, the product that it is because it's not that sweet honestly it's dense you know buttery and sour cream and uh, a dense bread you know
1: I love how senses can really bring back a memory. You know, it's hearing certain music. It's tasting something. It's certain smells. Maybe it's even the smell of the house and how that brings back this whole wave of memories.
0: Mason, what are some things that bring you back to your holidays?
1: Well, a big part of the holidays for me will always be the memory of growing up, my mom making tons of Christmas cookies. She grew up in the Allegheny Highlands and I sat down with her recently to talk about all the foods we remember, including the cookies. What are some of your favorite cookies to make over the years? You've made a lot of cookies. There's the Hershey Kiss cookies, there's the sugar cookies, frosted and unfrosted variations, sprinkles. There's the fudge, there's peanut butter fudge. There's oatmeal raisin cookies. What are some of your favorite cookies that? would you hold up as staples of your, your Christmas cookie uh, career?
8: You pretty much have named it all. Because <laughs> I remember, oh, goodness, I love to make cookies. And and you guys would go to bed at night, and I would be up to 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning making cookies. I would make the little Mexican wedding cookies, and I would make the the fudges and the, the sugar cookies.
1: What, did, what were you doing up so late at night? making cookies. I don't, that's the secret life of mom that I didn't know about (laughs) because I was sleeping.
8: Oh, I love making cookies. It was just so much fun. And I would make all these different cookies. I just had this extra energy and I didn't do it every night, but I remember, goodness, I could have an open house with all these cookies, but then, you know, I would give them to neighbors and we would do a cookie exchange with some of my friends that their children were your age, and and we would get together and have a cookie exchange.
1: Where did you learn how to make fudge? I know that's something you've always done, and I grew up with it. Like I remember, um, there was a period where I didn't like it because it was too rich, and then I came back to it later, like and realized how great it was. Where did you learn how to make that fudge?
8: Um. I learned it from my cookbook, from my Better Homes and Gardens cookbook. It's one recipe I use all the time, but my mom made a a chocolate fudge that was so good. We all look forward to having mom's chocolate fudge. It was shiny. She didn't use marshmallow cream, but she used black walnuts from the farm. And it was so good, and none of us have the recipe for that.
1: Did she commission y'all to go collect the nuts every year? Do oh, you yeah, we
8: would always go collect all kinds of black walnuts and bring them in and get our hammers out and crack them. <laughs> Tried to make sure there were no shells.
1: I asked my mom to talk more about the food she remembers our family making, including my dad Steve's family in Illinois. I, I remember uh, I was thinking about Growing up, because we'd always, you know, we'd always go up to Paris, right? Paris, Illinois. What have you picked up from Grandma Adams that she made? Because you have those noodles, too, which I feel is pretty distinctive.
8: She, in East Central Illinois, where Steve grew up, his family lived, they all made these homemade egg noodles, and you roll them out very, very thin, and that was my first introduction to those noodles. And so I tried to carry that tradition all the way over into our family. Um, but also the dressing. Steve's mom made this really good dressing. And sometimes she would make an extra batch and put oysters in it.
1: We'd always do holidays with Kellisons, too, and it'd usually be at Grandpa's house, or occasionally we went up to the schoolhouse. Or, but it was usually at Grandpa's house, and I remember you and Aunt Sue and Aunt Jamie in the kitchen, and all of us cousins running around, playing, often in the basement. And What did y'all cook?
8: We would always have a turkey, and I think I would bring the dressing and the noodles, and Jamie would do macaroni salad. And we'd have green beans. Green beans was a a, a a staple that we all loved because Mom would can green beans.
1: I remember there was usually a Jello salad, too, if not two.
8: Definitely, there was. Um, Mom would always fix this lime Jello with the nuts and the pineapple and cottage cheese, and we all loved that. So we would have that. Willie Sue would come my aunt, your great aunt, she would come and she always made fruit cakes. But something else we all liked was my sister Sue would bring a yellow cake, kind of like a pound cake with caramel icing. So Mason, where's your mom's family
0: from again?
1: Well, her family's from the Allegheny Highlands on the Virginia-West Virginia border. She grew up on a farm outside Covington, and that's where we gathered every year for the holidays. You know, about 10 years ago, my dad passed away, and then we had our son um, within the space of a year. And having kids really does change how you view the holiday. Kids are awesome, like their energy and enthusiasm is infectious. And so you can't help but be like carried away on the tide of Christmas cheer when you have kids there. It's, It's made me a lot more active and engaged in thinking about family traditions. And so I loved the excuse this year to interview my mom about, her memories and her traditions and how they overlap with my traditions. One thing that I really realized, though, is because I had asked her these questions, you know, in years past, I'd say, what do you remember about growing up mom? What What was your Christmas like? And she'd say, oh, I don't remember. You know, I just, that's so far back. But by framing it, the way we did and talking about specific food, the language of the food combined with that sense memory, I think, opened up stuff. Because I would say like phrases like walnut. And my mom would be like, oh, I forgot about all this stuff. And she would start talking about it. I really enjoyed that conversation. So I would encourage any of our listeners, have those conversations. Talk with your parents or your kids about the Christmas cookies that you love now, that you loved as a kid. And if you want to write us and tell us about it, we're at InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. It's a great way to connect with your family and open up some of these traditions.
0: So something that I want to ask you more about Mason is the jello salad. So this is kind of like a mysterious like mythical thing for me. I again, in a German household, that was just not something I ever had, but I would see it in movies or hear about it, and I'm curious how you feel about jello salad.
1: You know, as a kid, I loved it. It was sweet. It was basically like a dessert masquerading <laughs> as a salad. But one thing that um, struck me was how my mom actively built traditions for our family. And some of that's because her mom, my grandmother, Ruth, died in an accident the year before I was born. And I talked about the effect of how having kids, like it makes you connect because you want to provide these things. And so when my mom was bringing us up, I'm the older of two brothers. When my mom was bringing us up, she didn't have my grandmother there to make cookies with and and share with. And so you know, she talks about how she learned from friends, she learned from cookbooks, and, and Jell-O came out of this it was that sort of 50s and 60s, there's more appliances on the consumer market, there's cookbooks like the Better Homes and Gardens and magazines, and there's this whole sort of um, sector growing around the kitchen and making food. And I think Jell-O certainly was a consumer product that came out of that, and It's cool to see how people have applied their own spins to it. That's in a lot of ways the definition of folklore. And they've passed it down to their kids. um, That said, I loved Jell-O as a kid. We don't really incorporate it in our meals now.
0: So we've been talking about Jell-O, because today on Inside Appalachia, we're looking back at holidays through the lens of food and other traditions from our families.
1: We also asked you, our listeners, to share your memories. Folks sent us messages on social media, and we called them up.
0: Yeah, I actually spoke with a woman last December from Jefferson County, West Virginia. And she actually commented on our Twitter call-out asking people for their holiday traditions She is studying abroad in Germany, of all places. And she's been there now for the past year. Emma Louise Leahy is her name. So she's especially feeling kind of sentimental and reminiscent right now because she can't come home, you know, because of the pandemic. She told me about a recipe she calls cranberry salad, and it's passed down from her West Virginia side of her family. We actually
9: make it from this handwritten recipe card that we have from my grandma. We keep her little box of recipes in the kitchen cabinet and she wrote out all of her recipes by hand. She had this beautiful cursive handwriting. Um, Nowadays you know people don't learn to write like that and it's actually kind of hard for me to read it.
5: But uh,
9: that's a very well-loved recipe that that comes out every single year for Christmas and also for Thanksgiving dinner. We have to get started the day before with fixing it uh, because it has to sit overnight. Um, You need to have fresh cranberries, mandarin oranges, pecans, and if you want, apples, but it's not necessary. Uh, Chop them up really finely. It's easiest if you use a food processor. And then it marinates overnight in brown sugar. And so that gets it really... It's, it's got a very tangy taste. Uh, it's not so much sweet, um, you know, fresh cranberries are kind of a bit of a bitter taste. Um, oranges are also quite acidic. So the, the sugar and the acid combines to make it this really kind of wow taste in your mouth. We always like to eat it kind of in between courses uh, to clean your palate, basically. We always like to you know, serve it up on the table in a, in a glass bowl so that we can see it. It adds really this beautiful kind of red and orange pop of color to the table, uh, and everybody looks forward to it
0: every year. And so did you get to know your grandmother? Were you able to make it with her? Um, she died when I was five. Okay. Uh,
9: so this is actually, the these recipes and these things that she left are, are kind of the way that, that we know her most closely. Uh, she's still somebody that even in her physical absence from our life since she's passed on, that she's left a, a big impact on our family.
0: And are you going to make the recipe just for yourself while you're over in Germany? Well, you know, um I did
9: want to make it, but as it turns out, it's very tough to find fresh cranberries in Berlin. Uh, even, you know, if you go really? to Yeah, if you go to even a high end supermarket, it's not easy. So maybe not this year.
0: (laughs) I wonder why. (laughs) I I wouldn't have even thought that. That's interesting. Yeah, I guess that cranberries are, are
9: quite an American thing. And, you know, cranberries are so much part of our holiday traditions, creating those garlands with the popcorn and the cranberries that you sew together to put on the tree outside. All of those type of things. I kind of took them for granted, I guess, until I realized that they're not as widely available everywhere.
1: I interviewed Clara Hazlett, a member of the Inside Appalachia Folkways Reporting Corps. And Clara talked to me about strawberry shortcake and how her family, much like (laughs) you ate Stalin, her family ate strawberry shortcake every, every morning on Christmas.
6: I was born in a little tiny town in Pennsylvania. And we lived next to this old woman named Betsy. And she always used to make strawberry shortcake and have all the kids over. I have a big family, so there are seven kids. She never married, so she kind of took all of us kids under her wing, and she would always make strawberry shortcake for us. So I think when um, we moved to West Virginia, I was only like two or something, maybe one. My mom started making it on Christmas morning just as like a, in, in honor of her, she was an older lady and passed away, so...
1: What struck me about Clara's stories were both the strength of her family's traditions, but how they incorporated traditions from friends and neighbors. There's another character she talked about.
6: We called him the Groundhog Man, and I don't know if anyone else called him that, but that's what our family called him. And he would come every Christmas Eve, and he had like a big pot belly and like a big beard. It wasn't white, but he still kind of like reminded me of Santa because he would. Come every Christmas, and he would bring um, just a bunch of desserts. And I think he and his wife would make them together, um, but they were like amazing desserts that, you know, took kind of a long time, like pumpkin rolls and nut rolls. So we wouldn't really make them often, but we would wait for him to come every Christmas Eve. And one year he never came, and we were like, Where's the Groundhog Man? And he He actually got cancer and passed away, and I think maybe around Christmas time, or we just didn't know about it, because I would only see him on Christmas Eve every year. I don't really know anything about him. All I know is he is called the Groundhog Man, and he made some really good sweets. And it really, it was sad, because that was part of our Christmas tradition, and um, I think we didn't realize how much he played a role in it until he wasn't there anymore.
1: Today on Inside Appalachia, we're talking about holiday traditions. Sometimes those family traditions come in a tin.
0: I talked with Matt Milligan, and he has this love for these Royal Danks cookies. They're like Danish shortbread cookies, and they come in that blue tin. And like he grew up with them, just the tins. He grew up with the tins, but that wasn't the part that he took away from it. The part he took away is that he actually loves these cookies.
10: I love them so. You get a can of them, and there's like you know 800 pieces almost. <laughs> I can like, I can take a, a whole can down like in
0: one sitting. You know? Oh my gosh! <laughs> Do you remember having them like when you were a kid? Or oh yeah, yeah, they've always been around. Growing up,
10: they they've you know appeared every holiday usually, and then just around the house too, because my family would use the tins as storage. So like a lot of times I'll see one of them and I'll open it up and I'll either expect cookies or like a sewing kit.
0: (laughs) Well, and what's interesting is I feel like those cookies, it's like either you love them or you hate them. And like for some people, they end up just sitting around and they don't eat them. And then some people are obsessed with them.
10: Yeah, they're like the, the the candy corn of Christmas. I used to work in the airport, and a lot of times people would just leave those just in the in the sitting areas, you know, still with, like, the, the plastic wrap around it. And I would see that, like, a mile away, and I would just kind of wait, wait for the passengers to leave, and then just scoop it right up.
0: <laughs> Have you always liked them?
10: Oh, yeah. Like, they're just the best. Like, and they come in like little... You know, cup, cupcake wrappers or whatever those was called. You know, like a little, little mini coffee filter looking things. You know they're good because they come in that.
0: <laughs> For someone who hasn't tried them, how would you describe that first bite into one of those oh. cookies?
10: Oh, man. It's like, <laughs>
0: it sounds
10: kind of wrong, but it's like just eating a stick of butter with sugar on top. <laughs> And especially, like, if you put them in the fridge for a little bit and then eat them, they're they're just so much more delicious.
0: So have you had any yet this season?
10: Uh, Not yet. I haven't found any in the wild yet, but (laughs) because of of world crises, I I haven't ventured out too much.
0: I mean, do you see them, like, for a little bit on sale or clearance after Christmas?
10: They just vanish, appear, and then disappear out of nowhere, like, like the aliens took them or something. Like, I don't know where they go.
0: Oh, my gosh. You have a very great way of describing these cookies. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I haven't tried them in years. So because of this conversation, I'm going to have to, like, go try them again and put them in the fridge so that they're a little cold.
10: Yeah, get them a little cold. And they're, they're great.
0: That was listener Matt Milligan talking about his favorite Christmas cookie. Today on Inside Appalachia, we're talking with folks about holiday traditions, and for many of us, that includes food. Reporter
1: Connie Bailey Kitts, who we heard earlier talking about her music-loving goats, says her family has another holiday tradition: making gingerbread from a family recipe. Well, I got to ask you about this uh, gingerbread um, recipe with molasses in it.
2: Okay, so it was like like my grandmother Bailey's recipe. And she lived over in Rock, West Virginia. And I think that the recipe probably goes back to the 1930s. At least we, I know from my cousin that she was making it in the 1930s. And uh, the copy of it that I have was what my uh, uncle typed out uh, on typing paper for my mom. And it's dated March 1950. But it's... It's a really, really wonderful recipe because it's a real moist gingerbread cake and it calls for sor- well it calls for molasses, but the best molasses to use in it is sorghum molasses and my cousin uh, who has a farm over in Mercer County, West Virginia, uh, he and a bunch of his friends have made sorghum molasses for years it's It's pretty much a three day process. He planted. Uh, about two to three acres of sorghum, and you have to harvest it before the frost if you're going to make molasses out of it. You, you'd have to strip off the blades, and then you have to squeeze these stalks to get out the juice, and then you cook it down in not just a big not just a big pot, but like a really really big pot, and then they put it over a fire and cook the juice down until it gets real syrupy and of course that's where the art is is knowing when you've cooked it down enough but it kind of looks like liquid gold i guess when you have it at the you know at the right point and then you jar it up but they made like one year 175 gallons of this stuff (laughs) and then i'd always save it for the gingerbread cake recipe you know like the kind of molasses you get in the store, the blackstrap, or sometimes that grandma's molasses, it's stronger, and the sorghum's not as strong. It's more mild, and it's just like perfectly balances perfectly with the spices in the gingerbread cake. So you have like, uh, especially the ginger. You know, you have ginger, and you have a little bit of cinnamon, a little bit of a uh, little bit of cloves.
0: I mean, just even listening to her describe it, Mason. I mean, I my mouth was watering. I mean, that sounds like some of the best gingerbread. <laughs> and another tradition that I heard about that's like been passed down through the family was from Julie Davis. She lives in Charleston, and she reached out to me on Facebook. And this one isn't food, but it involves Santa stickers. It's like stickers of of Santa. This tradition comes from her dad. And it was from when he was really young. It was during World War II. His father had just passed away and his mother, you know, was trying to give the kids some kind of holiday celebration, but it was kind of a sad time and they didn't have a lot of money. And so it was Christmas Eve. They're decorating the house and Julie's dad had this Santa sticker and there was a mirror in the living room and he stuck the
11: sticker on the mirror. It's just a Santa face, his lovely, endearing face, and his mother had no problems with that. They were trying to celebrate and, you know, bring joy in their home, Um, and then it started. So, every year on Christmas Eve, um, it became a, a little ceremony where they put a new Santa sticker on the mirror. Oh, my gosh. And so then he passed that down to you, and do you remember doing that as a kid, and was it exciting? Absolutely. So what happened from there, each year they would do that. They would place the Santa sticker on that mirror um, every Christmas Eve. They had the Davis family holiday parties at my grandmother's house, at his mom's house, and that continued um, throughout her life. We would always gather at her house on Christmas Eve, and one of the things we did was someone got to put the Santa sticker on the mirror. So next year will be the 80th anniversary of doing it. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. It's like this, this one mirror, it's not incredibly large, but so it's almost full. So how would you guys decide who gets to put the sticker up? It started out, I think the oldest, and then each year, the next person in line, chronologically in age, would get to do it until eventually everyone in the family got a chance to do it. And... (laughs) Where it was one of those things that was just like part of, you know, you gather with your family and you're all excited. And we crammed into the little, you know, little apartment. And it was amazing because you're just, you know, you're all with family and that's what's important. And this was a big deal. Like it was really fun. And you're like, oh, you get to do it this year. And you're like, it's like, what place it right. And they take a picture and it was just really exciting. And it's one of those things that I'm sure so many people have these unique things that they do. That just started on a whim, and anyone else is like, "What? <laughs> I'm like, what do you do?" And you're just <laughs> like, no, no, you don't get it. It's really great.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and do you remember when it was your turn to place the sticker? I mean, it must have felt like a very big deal.
11: Yeah, very exciting. Very exciting. You felt really honored. Like, oh, I get to do it now. <laughs> Being a part of a family is, you know, it's just such a wonderful thing to have, and that you get to place the santa sticker like yeah it's my turn it it, you know just one of those things that you you feel real excited and proud that okay it's my turn i get to do it you know like especially if you're younger that's julie davis talking about her family's
0: santa sticker tradition she originally told us that story last year this christmas julie's three-year-old second cousin gets to put the santa sticker on the mirror Happy holidays to
1: all y'all listening out there. And to you, Caitlin.
0: Thanks, Mason. You too. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia.
8: So someone get a punch bowl or whatever thing majig will hold a little ice
10: and a lot of something cold. But we ain't got a lot of punch, but that's
8: alright.
1: Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Richie Collins, Vince Garaldi, The Rich Collins 3-0, Vortex, Blue Dot Sessions, Tim Marima, Josh Ritter. And Corey Chisel is heard on Mountain Stage. Roxy Todd is our producer. Our executive producer is Andrea Billups. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. Special thanks to Will Wright. You can find us on Twitter, at inAppalachia.
0: You can also send us an email to insideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit our website, wvpublic.org, to subscribe or download all of our stories, or look for Inside Appalachia wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting.
1: Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.